Please turn to Genesis 48. We have uh, two more weeks in the life of Joseph uh, this week and next. And then in September, I'm going to start a new sermon series on the Lord's Prayer as we learn how to pray with Jesus. But uh, we've got two more weeks in the life of Joseph. And let me read now Genesis 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the, to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this, is, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be, a great, will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give you one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my bow, sword and my bow. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we come to it with anticipation because we know that in your word we hear your voice. We know that you speak a word to us by your spirit and through your word, and we pray that you would do that this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning, as you see from the sermon title, we're going to talk about death, and I know that's a bit of a downer because I'm always sad at the end of the summer because a lot of good things are coming to a close, and so this seems like piling on a little bit, and so why talk about death? I mean, Benjamin Franklin did say there are only, uh, the only certain things in life are two, death and taxes, so there's that, but even more importantly, our passage talks about death, and my commitment to expository preaching is that I'll preach God's word, not my own ideas and opinions. And that means I'm always seeking to allow God's word to determine the topic of my sermon and the shape of it. Genesis 48 is clearly about the death of Jacob, Joseph's father, one of the main characters of this story. And if you've been following along with us, you know that Jacob has moved to Egypt in the famine at the invitation of Joseph, who saved his family through the famine. And interestingly, Genesis doesn't tell us too much about uh, Jacob's 17 years, the last 17 years of his life in Egypt. Genesis fast-forwards in this account to death. Joseph is told that his father is ill, and he goes to see him. And uh, we're told that Jacob rallies his strength to sit up in bed. This is how sick and weak he is at this point. He can barely sit up in bed. And on this occasion, Joseph brings his two sons to his father for a blessing. And what Genesis 48 is about is Jacob's adopting of his grandson so he can bless them as his own. And then in chapter 49, the blessing of the rest of Jacob's sons. And, and because uh, we want to finish this series, we're not going to focus on Genesis 49 in particular. We'll jump to Genesis 50 next week. But Genesis 48, which we're going to focus on, is on the blessing of, jo of Joseph's two sons, and you need to know that at this point, Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are about 20 years old. And so when the text suggests that they're sitting on Jacob's lap, they're probably a little old for that. They're probably not sitting on his lap. They're probably standing at his knees or crouching down at his knees. And here's the picture. Jacob, at this point, is reflecting on his life. And he's blessing Joseph's two sons. And I think a passage like this gives us occasion for us to ponder death because we will all face this moment. When we're too weak to sit up in bed, when we are facing our own death. Interestingly, I, I read about Paul Simon's latest album, perhaps his last. He's 81 years old. His last album is Seven Psalms, and uh, it's a reflection as he sees death approaching. He starts the album singing, I've been thinking about the great migration. The New York Times reviewer, John Perella, says, almost immediately it becomes clear that the migration is from life to death. A transition the singer is preparing to make himself. He's thinking about time, love, culture, family, music, eternity, and God. Striving to balance skepticism and something like faith. For example, on the album, he sings this line, two billion heartbeats and out. Or does it all begin again? He ends the album with a song called Wait, where he sings, my hand's steady, my mind is still clear. And then his wife, Edie Brickell, joins singing this, Life is a meteor. Heaven is beautiful. It's almost like home. And then they both end singing amen. He is reflecting on death as he sees it approaching. And we will all face this moment, and the question is, how will we do it? Jacob here in Genesis 48 models a profound faith and hope as he's lying on his deathbed. Here's the interesting thing. Hebrews 11, which was our New Testament reading this morning, mentioned Jacob. 
Hebrews 11 identifies moments of great faith in the Old Testament. And interestingly, you know what makes the list? Jacob's death, verse 22 in Hebrews 11. Of all the moments this writer could have chosen in Jacob's life, he chooses his death as an example of great faith. Here's verse 22. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Jacob demonstrates great faith at his death, and I want to consider this morning how he does that. I'm going to consider that together. Because I think Jacob shows us that God strengthens his people so that they can have hope even in the face of death. God strengthens his people so that they can have hope even in the face of death. At his death, Jacob is physically weak but spiritually strong. And I think we see his faith and hope shine through most clearly in his last words, or some of his last words, in verses 15 and 16 as he's blessing his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And I think uh, Jacob here bears witness to three things. A God who has been faithful in the past, a God who is active in the present, and a God who blesses in the future. A God of the past, present, and future. And I like to look at these three things because this is what gives us, I think, hope in the face of death. So first, the God who has been faithful in the past. When uh, Joseph brings his sons to Jacob, Jacob says, who are these? Which is an interesting question to ask because you think after 17 years in Egypt, Grandpa Jacob would know his grandsons. So either this is poor eyesight at this point, or it's a question that's part of the blessing ritual. For example, like when you're at a wedding, uh, the pastor will ask this question, who brings this woman to be married to this man? Yeah, of course he knows. I mean, it's, it's part of the, the ritual, right? And perhaps this question is part of this blessing ritual. And so he says, who are these? And, and Joseph says, these are my sons that I've had in Egypt. And he brings his sons close to Jacob. And he kisses and embraces them. And Jacob says to Joseph poignantly, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. And uh, Joseph takes Manasseh, his older son, and he puts him by Jacob's right hand, which is the place of honor and double blessing. And he puts Ephraim, the younger, on, on his left, and Jacob switches hands. We're going to talk about that in, in a moment. In verse 15, Jacob blesses Joseph by blessing his two sons, and he begins with this phrase. He says, May the God be before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully. That's how he begins his blessing. And I want to pause there. Because I think this is an important phrase. It's important that he begins this way. Because it alerts us to the fact that Jacob is not invoking the gods of Egypt, who are many, but the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of the Bible. Because God made covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Remember that he would lead him to the promised land, that he would make him into a great nation, and that he would bless him and his offspring so that they could be a blessing to the world. And, and so when Jacob begins his blessing this way, he's reminding Joseph and his sons that they are included in these covenant promises that God made to Abraham. And so very interestingly, if you've read your Bible, you know that this phrase recurs in Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob recurs all through Scripture. So for example, in Exodus... Three, Moses at the burning bush, and God says to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. Why does he say that? 
He's saying, say to the Israelites, remind them of who I am. I am the covenantal promise-keeping God who's been faithful to his people. This is who I am. And who are you? You're my covenant people. I've made a promise to you. Remind them of that. And then fast forward into the New Testament, and, he, and interestingly, in Acts 3, Peter's in the temple. He heals a man lame from birth, and the crowds are absolutely amazed. They're astounded. And they gather around him, and Peter, by way of explanation, says this. Why does this surprise you? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent Jesus into the world, and by faith in Jesus, this man has been healed. What is Peter doing? He, he's saying this, this healing is not just a, a magic trick. It's not just a random supernatural occurrence. He, he's giving a context for this healing. This healing is taking place as the fruit of a covenantal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent Jesus into the world. And by faith in Jesus, this man is now being healed. He's giving a context for this healing. So when Jacob invokes the God of Abraham and Isaac, he is reminding Joseph and his sons that they are not random, unconnected individuals having to hew out of this world a meaning in their lives for themselves. No, he's reminding them that they are under the care of a faithful, covenantal God. And they are part of a much bigger story that has started with Abraham, and they are recipients of God's covenantal promises given in the past. And so this is the first handhold that Jacob has in his death. He's trusting in a God faithful in the past who's given covenantal promises to his people, who's writing this great redemptive story. This week I learned about a book that recently came out entitled End Credits by Patty Lynn, who is one of the TV writers for the sitcom Friends. And I didn't read the book. I was reading an essay written by her based on the book, um, talking about her experience as a TV writer. And she says that she retired from TV writing at the ripe old age of 38. And when people ask her why she retired, such a cool career, she talks about the experience writing for Friends. When her agent first told her that, uh, that the Friends team, which was at that time the most popular sitcom in America, were interested in her and wanted to meet her, she was stunned. She's even more stunned after a grueling eight-person interview that she got the job. Sitcom had 14 writers. Each 12-hour day started in a giant conference room. And uh, here's the picture. She sketches. At 10 a.m., the people would trickle in. They would break into two teams and work on separate episodes. Says she had two very scary bosses. One was an impossible-to-please workaholic, always looking for a better line or joke. The other had a booming voice and would rest her bare feet on the table while they worked. After each script was done, they would sit around a table where the cast would read it aloud. And she said at first the table reads were very exciting because she got to be in the same room as the TV stars in that series, and there's always a catered breakfast. But she said soon the appeal wore off because there were many competing egos in the room, and there was the high pressure. There were rewrites after rewrites after rewrites until the wee hours in the morning, rewriting lines that were funny the first time with the constant pressure to come up with a better line that would deliver a bigger laugh. Patty says, surrounded by these elite comedy writers, eroded her self-confidence. She was more of a drama writer working in comedy. And so after the first season, she was let go, which was crushing. But she says, also a relief. She says, no more all-night rewrites, no more anxious joke pitching, no more feeling like a nerd at the popular kid's table. 
And it's a fascinating window into a very high-pressure world of sitcom writers. And as I was reading it, I thought, we, I think we face a similar pressure today in this culture. We have the pressure to write our own narrative, to come up with our own script, to fashion a better line or a bigger joke, to, to find a, bigger, a greater audience, because our culture tells us consistently that we can be whoever we want that we can create whatever identity that we want, that, that, that it's our story to write, which I think at the beginning sounds very freeing. But I think it delivers a great amount of pressure, enormous pressure, because besides all the other things we have to figure out, now we have to figure out our identity. We have to create a compelling narrative for ourselves. And when that doesn't work, when the story we're writing for ourselves doesn't deliver the accolades and awards that we hope, there's no one to blame but ourselves. And that is an enormous pressure. I point out when Jacob blesses his grandsons, he doesn't say to them, now, boys, you can be whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can write your own story. No, he begins by giving them a view of a great covenantal God who's been faithful to their fathers and forefathers, who's writing a great redemptive story. What does this have to do with us? Galatians 3 tells us that when we become Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters of Abraham. In other words, our lives are being woven into this great redemptive story that the faithful covenant God has been writing since the past. Jacob first points out a God who's been faithful in the past. Secondly, he points us to a God who is active in the present. In the middle part of this blessing, Jacob identifies how God has been active in his life in the present. And look with me at verse 15. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And of course, it's a common biblical metaphor. God is a shepherd. We think immediately of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Genesis 48 is the first use of this metaphor. And, you know, of course, we don't live in an agrarian culture. We probably never met a shepherd before. Maybe some of you have. I've never met a shepherd before. But we understand this metaphor. If God is our shepherd, it means he leads us and feeds us and protects us. It means he has a very personal relationship with us. As a shepherd knows his sheep, so God knows us. And here's what I want to point out. Jacob is not offering this up as a Sunday school theological lesson on the nature of God. He's offering this up on his deathbed as a personal testimony of his own experience. He's looking back on the 130 years of his life, and he says this in summary. God has been my shepherd all my life, every day, to this day. And the reason why I think that's very significant is because Jacob did not live an easy life. Let me just remind you of, of some of the things that he endured. He had a father that, that didn't love him, or at least he loved his older brother more than him. He had to flee his family because he stole the blessing and, and uh, was, uh, you know, lost the grace of, of his father and his brother. He was exploited by an uncle. He was tricked into marrying a woman he didn't love. When he did marry the woman he loved, she died shortly after childbirth. Then he loses the son he loves for many years. He faces starvation in a famine. And yet he gets to the end of his life and he says, 
God has been my shepherd every day to this one. Because it's as he's looking back, he sees it most clearly. And then verse 16, he says, God has not only been his shepherd, verse 16, he says, God is the angel who has delivered me from all harm. And Jacob is probably, what he has in mind is the, the moments when an angel of God appeared to him at key crisis moments of his life. There's one moment he's returning to Canaan after fleeing his family and, and being estranged from them for many years. He's coming back and he hears that his brother Esau, who he wronged, is on the way to meet him. And he's anxious. Before he meets Esau, that, that night, he's all alone. And at night, a man comes and wrestles with him until daybreak. Turns out he's an angel of the Lord, God himself. Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he wakes up the next morning and he, he calls the place Peniel. He says, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. He had wrestled with the angel of God. At crisis moments, Jacob has personal and remarkably intimate encounters with God as an angel. And so at the end of his life, Jacob is reminding us of the God who is actively present in his life. God is shepherd and angel. It's like this moment in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and the Boy. It's a story about a talking horse named Bree and a runaway orphan named Shasta, and together they are on a journey to Narnia in hopes of finding a better life. All on this journey, they face all sorts of danger and difficulty. Along the way, at key points of their journey, they're chased by a lion. They're very fearful for their lives. But it's at the end of the story, when they make it to Narnia and they look back, they realize that the lion was none other than Aslan, the Christ figure, who had been following them every moment of their journey quietly and mostly out of sight, watching over them and prodding them along at important And Jacob, at the end of his life, comes to a similar realization. He realizes something. It comes into focus that God has been present at every moment of his life, even the hard moments. God was present as his shepherd, as his angel protecting him, quietly, oftentimes out of sight, but there, present with him. I wonder if this is true for you. And maybe herein lies the problem. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, but you don't sense God's presence. Maybe you're here this morning, you're hearing me talk about Jacob and his realization. You're like, well, that's great for him, but I don't, I, I'm not right now experiencing God as a shepherd in my life. And perhaps you've had ups and downs in your life like Jacob. Maybe you've had a parent who doesn't love you. Or maybe you've been estranged from your family for years or been exploited by someone or married someone who you think is the wrong person or experienced major loss of a spouse or a son, or encountered the fear of death. All these things Jacob experienced, and yet when he looks back, he says, God has been a shepherd in my life every day up to this day. Because sometimes you can only see God's presence in your life when you look back. So if you're a Christian here this morning, and you don't have the sense of God's presence that you'd like, Here's a question you need to ask yourself. Do I trust in God's word more and when it tells me that God is my shepherd and he's present, do I trust in God's word? Do I trust my feelings at this moment? Do I trust what my circumstances are telling me? Which is it? Is it, is it God's word that I trust? Or is it my feelings and my circumstances that I trust? 
You know, Surgeon General, recently Vivek Murthy called attention to an epidemic of loneliness in this, in our, in this country. An epidemic of loneliness, isolation, and a lack of connectedness. It's interesting. He called this out. He identified. We're, we're, in a, we're an epidemic, he says, of loneliness. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I've experienced it. And here's the healing. Here's the beginning of the healing. It's community for sure that I, I hope our church can address. But here's the beginning. It's come to Jesus who promises to be the good shepherd who will never leave you or forsake you. Because when everyone deserted the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, you know what he said? He says, everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. And my friends, here's how Jacob had hope in death on his death, that he wasn't alone. He says, I know God is my shepherd. And he's been with me every day of my life as I look back up to today. Jacob points to a God who's been faithful in the past, who is active in the present, and then third and last, a God who bestows blessing in the future. The end of the blessing here, Jacob looks toward the future. Look at verse 16, speaking of the boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. Jacob is trusting that God will bestow future blessings on Joseph's sons. He says, may they increase greatly on the earth. And what's striking is how this future blessing is bestowed. Joseph, faithful father that he is, places Manasseh, his older son, on the right, on Jacob's right. Again, the place of greater honor, the, the place of greater blessing. There is the ancient uh, principle of primogeniture, which said the firstborn receives a double portion of the inheritance. And so he places uh, Manasseh on his right hand, Ephraim, the younger, and the second son on the left. And this is when Joseph does something strange and striking. He crosses his hands. He puts his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older son, Manasseh. And, and verse 17 says, Joseph is displeased. And there's, there's a note of anger in this, in this word. Joseph is displeased. He, I, I think he's, he's thinking, you know, Dad, you're, you're getting a little old and senile. You've mixed up my sons. He says, no, my father, Manasseh is the firstborn. He takes his hand and puts it on Manasseh's uh, head. And Jacob says, no, son, I know what I'm doing. I'm blessing the younger son with a greater blessing. The older son will be blessed. He'll be great. But I'm giving a greater blessing to the younger, younger son. He said, what's going on? Why, why this crossing of arms? And why does the writer of Genesis report this? It's a strange moment. I, I think it's two different ways of bestowing blessings. See, Joseph wants blessing by nature. He's a, he's a man of his time. This is where things are done. Manasseh before Ephraim, older before younger, boys before girls, wealthy before poor. That, that was what it was in those days, blessing by nature. And you hear that and you say, well, I'm, I'm so thankful that our culture has moved beyond that. But I think the, the world still has a sense of primogeniture, at least in this sense. The world still has groups that it, it thinks are more deserving of blessing. The educated, the beautiful, the wealthy, the social insiders, not the uneducated, the unattractive, poor outsiders. The, the world has a group that it thinks really gets things done. It's the cultural elites, not the masses. It's, you know, it's, oh, we're, we're probably proud of this a little. It's, it's New Yorkers, you know, not, not the, the, the rural person in the Midwest. That's who's important. 
There is, I would suggest, still a principal primogeniture. Manasseh before Ephraim. Older before younger. And Jacob challenges this and blesses by a different principle. He blesses not by nature, but by grace. He crosses his arms up and gives the greater blessing to Ephraim, the younger. I would suggest to you that it reflects how God operates by his grace, because this is not the only place where God bestows his blessing by grace. Consider this. God chooses Abel instead of Cain, Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, Judah instead of Joseph, Leah instead of Rachel, lowly David instead of mighty Goliath. And then you turn to the pages of the New Testament. Jesus chooses tax collectors and prostitutes instead of the Pharisees. And 1 Corinthians perhaps says it most plainly. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not so that no one may boast before him. The world says blessing operates and flows by nature. God says blessing flows and operates by grace to the younger, to the weak, to the lowly, to the outsider, to those who can't earn or deserve it. Jacob is pointing us to a God who bestows blessing, future blessing, by his grace. I don't know if you had a chance to watch Tim Keller's memorial service on the live stream, or it's been recorded, it's on YouTube. It happened about a week and a half ago, and I was watching that memorial service and found it very moving. Glenn Klein Connect shared a reflection from the early days of Redeemer, and he recounts this memory. He first met Tim when Tim traveled to New York City to talk about starting a church in Manhattan, and apparently Tim did not intend to be the pastor. There were two other men under consideration first, and only when they said no, someone in the group said, Tim, I think God is saying maybe you should be the pastor. And Tim gulped and said, I need to talk to my wife about that. So apparently Tim was not the first pick or the second pick to pastor Redeemer, but the third pick. Glenn Klein Connect shared that a friend who visited Redeemer in the early days asked him after one of the early sermons, where did you find this guy? Did you listen to a lot of sermons? And Glenn realized at that moment that they had not heard one sermon from Tim before they started Redeemer as evidence that God bestows blessing by grace. You know, of course. Of course, Tim went on to be this amazing, profound, uh, great preacher and teacher and visionary. But you know, if you listen to that memorial service and you, you listen to people and what they shared from the early days, the consistent testimony of those who knew Tim Keller in the early days knew him first as a pastor who personally cared for people and as a friend who personally loved people and as a person of great humility. He is not a social butterfly. By his own admission, apparently, he could feel awkward. But God uses the humble and the lowly and the outsider. God bestows blessing by grace. And he uses the outsider and the lowly and the humble because this is the way he saves us. He sent Jesus into this world, entering as a lowly, humble outsider. Jesus had no beauty that might attract us to him. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have power. He was born to two poor parents. He didn't climb any ladder of success. He hung on a cross as a criminal at the end of his life. And I found a, a particularly memorable and fitting line at 
the memorial service of Tim Keller, which by his own design lifted up Jesus Christ. This was a line. Jesus is a true and better Tim Keller. Because everything that we loved and respected about Tim Keller was a reflection of Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate pastor who cares, the ultimate friend who loves. And if we want to be saved by Jesus, it's not a matter of showing him how great we are, but how sinful we are. It's not how strong we are, but how much we're willing to admit our, to our weaknesses. It's not how wise we are, but how much we're willing to admit that we're foolish and we need a savior. Tim Keller, before he died, wrote this article in the Atlantic Monthly about his battle with pancreatic cancer, and it was entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. When he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he says this, One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. Belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. He says, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to other people, but not to me. But his death, he says, the last enemy became real to my heart. I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart. I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. The reason why Jacob, lying on his deathbed, had hope in the face of death was because he had, his faith in God was real and vital. He knew a God who's been faithful in the past, who's active in the present. Who... And my friends, this is a pathway to also have hope in the face of death. That our faith in God would not be theoretical, but would be real and vital. And that we would know a God who's been faithful to us in the past and active in the present and blessing in the future by his grace. We can have hope in death when we know Jesus is shepherding us every day of our lives, even on that day when we're on our deathbed. Jesus is our shepherd. Tim Keller's last words were apparently this. I'm ready to see Jesus. Send me home. That's hope in the face of death. And when we know Jesus, our Savior and shepherd is waiting for us on the other side. That can give us hope in the face of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every chapter of Scripture. Even this, this one that shows Jacob in his weakness, physically on his deathbed, but spiritually strong, with a firm hope in you. Lord, would you teach us by Genesis 48? Would you point us to the shepherd that you sent us in Jesus Christ, who is with us every day of our lives, even to the end, who is waiting for us on the other side? We pray this in his name. Amen.